0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Romans 9, I'm going to do verses 14 through 24. Our context is this, in chapter 1 Paul talked about, in chapter 2 Paul talked about wrath of God, the wrath of God on Jews and Gentiles, and because of that wrath we need to be justified before God declared righteous in heaven or we're not going to be saved. He starts at the end of chapter 3 and goes in chapter 4 and 5 talking about justification. How? By the law, no, but by faith apart from the law. Now that we've been justified by faith, we have to live our life out on this earth. So Paul talks about sanctification, which means overcoming sin, which is aroused by the law. Overcoming sin, as Paul talks about in chapter 6, the baneful effects of the law. It's talked about in chapter 7, how we need to be free from that. How are we free? We go to Romans 8, we walk in the Spirit. And the Spirit puts to death our deeds to the flesh, not the law. Now, after we're sanctified, of course, the ultimate end of our sanctification is glorification, and Paul talked about that in the end of chapter 8. Now, in chapter 9, he returns to, he's been talking to Jews mostly through the first half of the book of Romans, and now he takes up an issue which he's briefly touched on on the way through, and which he's going to hit later on in greater detail, but this the problem that he has, that God gave covenant promises to Abraham, to the Jews, also Messianic promises, and the Jews don't believe them. So then the charge might arise, well, then God must not be true to his promise. And Paul says, no, God is true to his promise because they are Jews who believe. They're spiritual Jews, not physical Jews. The physical Jews have basically re- rejected Christ. Not all of them, but a lot of them have. However, that Abraham is God's, is the children of us all who believe, and that includes Gentiles. And so Gentiles are going to come in. Now, in the course of this, of how God uh, carries out his plan for justification, Paul mentions election, and in the previous 13 verses, he mentioned how Jacob was chosen to receive God's birthright over his brother Esau, his twin brother Esau, in Rebekah's womb, and this election, this choosing, this choice was done not based on the basis of anything Jacob had done, because he was a little infant, a little fetus, so it wasn't based on that. And And actually, Esau hadn't done anything to lose the birthright, and so Paul uses that as an analogy to show that the people he does choose, both Jew and Greek, are chosen not on the basis of their goodness, the good things they do, but surely based on God's sovereign choice. Not our choice, but God's sovereign choice. Now, after saying that, saying that, the older Esau was gonna serve the younger, and based on that, that's how God chooses us. He anticipates an objection. People are gonna say, What? Are you saying that God chooses not based upon our choice? How is that just? God is making people holding people responsible for something they can't help. Well, Paul anticipates that, and then if you as we go through these next few verses, you will notice that the objections that Paul is dealing with sound very, very much like Armenian objections today, which is an embarrassing position for Armenians to be in. All right, so we start in Romans 9, verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not injustice because God chose one person over another, chose Jacob over Esau. Now note how how Paul's take on this objection, his dealing with it, how that cuts against the Arminian view, as John Gill points out. Arminians say God chooses based on his foreknowledge of whether one does good or bad. Now, nobody's ever going to say that's unjust. Well, yeah, you got what you deserve. God looks down the tunnel of time. He sees you choosing good, choosing God or not choosing God, choosing to go to hell or choosing to go to heaven. Well, you know, that's perfectly just. So I don't have a complaint against that. But Paul does not use that argument. Well, as a matter of fact, Paul is anticipating anticipating an argument that would never even arise against Arminians. If you took an Armenian position and said that God bases our salvation based on our free choice, nobody would ever say, whoa, there's injustice with God. And then Paul would have to defend himself. He didn't have to defend himself. Why? Because he wasn't an Armenian. Here is the perfect opportunity to use the Armenian answer to belay the charge of injustice. But Paul didn't use the Armenian answer. Instead, he goes on to say in the following verses that God's election was based on God's sovereignty, not upon our free choice. Now... Of course, that gives rise to an objection. Well, God's not fair. And we've all had that thought cross, cr- cross our minds, have we not? I remember when I was in high school, I had a hard time with this. But let's point out here, when God looks at the whole human race and he elects some and doesn't elect the others, the elect get mercy and the non-elect get justice. Well, how is giving people mercy and giving people justice, injustice on the part of God? Nobody gets injustice. Remember, it would be perfectly just for 100% of mankind to go to hell because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you don't believe me, look back to your past and to your friend's past and to anybody you've ever known and tell me which one of them is perfect and hasn't sinned. Remember, one sin is enough to get us thrown into hell in the face of a holy God. We all deserve hell. So the fact that God shows mercy to some, thank God he does. John Gill points out what we want to say other elections that God... Has done are unfair? God didn't save Sodom and Gomorrah, but He saved Lot and His family. He chose them out of the mess, out of the judgment. Is God unfair for doing that? God didn't save the rest of the world when the flood came, but He saved Noah and His company. Was God unjust for letting the rest of the world drown? God didn't choose all the nations of the world that weren't named Israel. Is God unfair for doing that? You're on dangerous grounds when you start suggesting that God is unfair. Verse 19, verse 15 of Romans 9, for he tells Moses, that's God, tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. When did God tell Moses that? This is in Exodus 33, 19, before the tent of tabernacle, I think it was, when, God, when Moses wanted to see God. He, God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The context of this is this was after the golden calf incident. All the people deserved death, but God only punished 3,000. So he chose who he was going to save out of the whole mass of the people who all deserved to die because of worshiping the golden calf. Now, you notice what God and Moses are talking about here is not national election of Israel. It's talking about individual election of individuals out of the mass of individuals, who could have been punished. So this wasn't national election. This was talking about the personal destruction of individual Israelites. Now that cuts against the Armenian idea that the election that Paul mentions in verses 11 and 12, I think it was, the previous verses, where God chose Jacob over Esau, the Armenians say that's the nation of Israel, Jacob over Esau, the nation of Edom, to get around this idea of God's personal choice of people's individual destiny, well... God chose the individual destiny of those people he judged at Mount Sinai with a golden calf. He elected some of them to not have to die. And the other ones he let the judgment fall where it was deserved. When God says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, we need to think of the definition of mercy. Mercy, by definition, is not obligatory. A convicted criminal cannot go to the judge and demand mercy. He can demand justice, but he can't, cannot demand mercy. No sinner in this world can go to God and demand mercy. He could demand justice, but he can't demand mercy unless he relies on the justice that Jesus Christ has already dealt with by paying the penalty for God's just law by dying on the cross. Here's a good scripture, good scripture that Calvinists love to quote Armenians stay away from. Psalms 115.3, our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Romans 9.16, so then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Human will, NIV, has human desire. What does not depend on human desire? It. Well, the it refers to God's choice of Jacob over Esau. God's choice for salvation, or birthright in Jacob's case, but Paul's making the analogy to human salvation. Salvation does not depend on human will. Now, that should take care of the Arminian tunnel of time argument. The Arminians say, well, God does choose, but he makes his election based upon what he sees. He looks far into the future, and he sees Dan Trotter making a choice. And Dan Trotter decides to choose Jesus, and therefore God says, okay, based on what you did, Dan, I'm going to choose to save you. Well, I think on philosophical and theological grounds, that is bunkum. But also on scriptural grounds, this verse right here completely knocks that argument down. Because Paul says, God's choice does not depend on human desire or will. Well, if you look down the tunnel of time and God's choice depends on what I do, what I choose to do down the tunnel of time, that means my salvation is dependent on my human will, my human choice, my human desire, whether it happens that in the future or whether it happens in the past. And again, talking about future and past, the tunnel of time, that bothers me on the philosophical grounds because God's above time. He's not caught in time. An Arminian to be logical, which should be an open theist if he was logical and carried it to his extreme, logical extreme. But he's not, so he says, well, somehow God is constrained by time and my choices and in time. Nonsense. This verse right here says, my salvation does not depend on human will or my human choice. It depends on God who shows mercy. In other words, if you're going to get saved, it has to be God showing mercy to you. Dead men don't choose, folks. You ever seen a corpse lying by the side of the road say, I choose to get up and walk in a new life not going to happen. Now, of course, this doesn't deny free will. Once one gets saved, you have the free will to do a lot of good things enabled by the Holy Spirit. You don't have the Holy Spirit before you get saved, but once you do, you have the Holy Spirit that can help you do godly things, and you also have free will where you can do ungodly things. You can go rob a bank as a Christian. You're an idiot to do so, but you could do it. Now, because I have free will to do a lot of good and bad things, that doesn't mean I have the free will to get saved. As I just said, just like I, a free man, don't have the freedom to fly to the moon because I don't have the ability to fly to the moon. You're going to freely do what's according to your nature. A lion doesn't have the free will to sing an opera because that's not in his nature. I don't think a lion has the free will to chew grass because I don't think that's in his nature either. You have the freedom only to do what's in your nature and the nature of an under person is you sin. That's what under people do. That's what you have the freedom to do to sin and go to hell. That's it. You don't have the freedom to save yourself. So our free choice does not depend on human will, as Paul says in verse 16. God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. Uh, our works, working jointly with God to affect salvation, is an idea that's alien to Paul here because it's only on God. It doesn't depend on how, how many good works we do or our free choice that we affect in order to get saved. We go to verse 17, chapter 9. Well, the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now we're going to see a theme here that God's election and reprobation both proclaim his glory. God judges sin by passing over some sinners who then live out the effects of their sin, and become justly punished, and that shows to the whole universe, hey, this is what happens when you re- re- when you revolt against an angry God and a God who's been offended by your sin, and so he talks about Pharaoh, for the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you." Well, we see in exodus nine sixteen God is speaking to Pharaoh, how I, however I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my no- m- name known in all the earth." So God is judging sin so that everybody will know what it means to have sin judged, and so that we will therefore be afraid of sin and shy away from it. Now this is the Egyptian pharaoh, of course, that Paul is talking about here. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, quoting Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, says this, quote, God did not make Pharaoh wicked, he only forebore to make him good by the exercise of special and altogether unmerited grace. Now, this, of course, is to protect God against the charge of sinning, which is what Armenians always say. Your God always is the author of sin. No, God did not elect to save Pharaoh. He elected to have Pharaoh illustrate his judgment. But He, God didn't make Pharaoh wicked. Pharaoh was wicked when he was born. He did everything and he deserved what he got. So let's quit blaming God for what Pharaoh did. God could have chosen Pharaoh, but he didn't have to. Mercy is not obligatory. Notice that Pharaoh never did anything against his, Pharaoh's free will. He voluntarily chose to make the children of Israel slaves and to try to run them down and drown them in the sea. He didn't succeed in it, but that's what he wanted to do. He did it on his own free will. Now, Paul says that God raised up Pharaoh so that he might display his power. Now, this is especially revealed in the Exodus, as the NIV Study Bible points out. I'm going to read you four scriptures here that shows how all the people back then knew about the Almighty God because of what happened at the Red Sea. Exodus 15, 13 through 18, this is in the famous Song of Moses. You will lead the people, this is you, God, Yahweh, will lead the people you have redeemed with your faithful love. You will guide them in your holy dwelling with your strength. When the people's hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. This is, of course, before the Israelites managed to invade the Canaanite region there. And so before they went, they had a reputation that the Israelites' god didn't mess around with sin. And the Philistians were sinning big time, and they were in trouble. So anguish, anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. The inhabitants of Canaan will panic And terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountains of your possession, Lord. You have prepared the place for your dwelling, Lord. Your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And the only way the Lord is going to reign forever and ever on this earth, he had to wipe out the sinners who were in the way. And the way he did that was he scared them to death by the power he showed when he judged Pharaoh with the ten plagues. I mean, we still talk about the ten plagues today. Cecil B. DeMille, the Ten Commandments in the movie. Joshua two ten through 11, this is a little bit later. This is Rahab speaking. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. This is before they were getting ready to cross over the Jordan. Rahab, the spy, uh, helped them out. We have heard which, which, what... the. the We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart. Rahab is referring to her pagan friends. We lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So Rahab was convinced to risk her life and throw her lot in with the Israelites because of the reputation of God's power. Remember, what I'm trying to illustrate here is in verse 17, God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power. And that's what he's doing in these verses. He's displaying his power by knocking off Pharaoh. He displayed Pharaoh's power. And of course, the ultimate point of this is God's going to also show his power and his his holiness when he fails to elect certain people and leads them to their judgment that they so richly deserve so that people can say, see there, this is what happens when you sin against the Holy God. Joshua 9.9, 9, they, now this is referring to the disguised lying Hivites who said that they were a long way off from the Israelites. They weren't subject to the, to the judgment of the Israelites on all the pagan Canaanites there. If you recall the story, they replied to him, to Joshua, your servants have come from afar away and because of the reputation of the Lord, your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. See, they're referring back to the the 10 plagues on Egypt and the Exodus, just like Paul says here in verse 17. The scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you. First Samuel 4, 8, woe to us. Now this is the Philistines talking, woe to us. Who will rescue us from the hands of these these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. They unfortunately referred to God as plural, but erroneously. But the point is, is they knew that the Egyptians were wiped out by the power of God, that Pharaoh was wiped out by the power of God. All right, so Paul is saying in verse 17, the scripture has already said this. God's power will be displayed, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, name refers to the character of God. And as I've just pointed out, the whole world knew about God, about Yahweh. He was not just a remote, tribal, local deity after these events. This was big stuff, the ten plagues and the Exodus. So now the people of Moab, the people of Edom, the people of Philistia, the Hivites, all these pagan people now know about the power of God. Here's a quote from Adam Clark, he's quoting another guy named Olshausen. God showed the power his power in Pharaoh in order that he might become a monument of the penal justice of God. A monument. Now notice that in the end of verse seventeen, the purpose of this judgment on Pharaoh was to show God's power and to proclaim God's name where? In all the earth. I've already mentioned all the places that his name was proclaimed. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, This is the principle of which all punishment is, inf- is inflicted, that the true character of the divine lawgiver should be known. Now remember, there's a purpose behind all this. It's easy to get lost for the trees, not to see the forest. The purpose is he's going to show punishment, hell, if you will, on the earth, so that people will know the divine character of the God that they've offended. And I'm telling you, people do not understand God today because they don't understand hell. They think God is some kind of old doting granddaddy in heaven that looks down and says, "Well, oh, that's all right, sonny. You just seduced that woman and got her pregnant. Well, that's all right. Just come on up here. I love you anyway." Hey, reminds me of some Christian. I say I'm tempted to say so-called Christian on The Bachelorette. She proudly tells the whole world that she had sex with one of the contestants in a windmill in Greece, I think it was, and then she's considering talking to other people who might like to marry her, including a dedicated Christian guy. And he finds out about this windmill stuff. And he says, I don't think that's a good idea for Christians to be doing that. And so she gets on Twitter and says, you're shaming me. You're slut shaming me. Nonsense. He's just stating an obvious fact. You're a sinner girl and your sin's going to hurt you. And I don't want to marry somebody who deliberately, openly sins. That's one thing if you sin and ask God to forgive you. That's fine. But to openly go out on national TV and on, on Twitter and talk about. And this is what she said. She said, God still loves me. Well, yeah, God's still a lesbian. He doesn't love the sin. When God forgave the woman caught in adultery, what did he say? He forgave her. And then he said, go and sin no more. People are presuming on the justice of God because of his forbearance. They misinterpret the kindness of God. They don't understand that the kindness of God is supposed to lead to repentance. And sooner or later, the cup of God's wrath is filled up. And then we have to pay the piper. And it's not going to be pleasant. So Paul is talking about a topic that is... Uh, extraordinarily unpopular in the modern wussy puss evangelical American church, which is wrath. So we go to Romans 9:18. So then he shows mercy to those he wants to, that would be the elect, and he hardens those he wants to harden. That's the non-elect, and God wants to harden the non-elect. And there's where people get all upset. How could God harden somebody's sin when well, it's not? It's, they don't have any choice in the matter. Well, yeah, they do too. Everything they did was done of their free will, and as a result. They get punished for it. And the punishment is the hardening of their heart. We'll talk about it a little bit more in detail later. We'll t- look at an example in the Old Testament where God showed mercy to those he wanted to. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. This is the golden calf incident. I think I've already quoted this verse once. So I'll quote it again. He, that's God said, talking to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And what he's saying is, I forgave 3,000 people for that gross sin of idolatry. Those are the elect, and I'm going to use them to establish Israel, which, of course, is the type of the church of Christ, the new redeemed humanity. Now, I said in verse 18, Paul hardens those he wants to harden. That's ultimately what he's getting at is the non-elect, the reprobate. But in, more specifically, he's talking about Pharaoh. He's, he's going back to that Old Testament example. He shows mercy to those he wants to. That would be the 3,000 that didn't get judged, that didn't get killed for their idolatry, and he hardens those he wants to harden, so that's referring to Pharaoh, that he hardened to show his power. Now this this thing about hardening Pharaoh's heart, oh my gosh, does everybody have trouble with this? I've had trouble with it too. I don't have any trouble with it anymore. Let's look at some scriptures that show about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And let me just give a preview here. God hardened Pharaoh's heart as punishment for his prior sin. He didn't take a sweet and innocent Pharaoh Harden his heart, say, see, your heart's hard, therefore I'm going to punish you. No, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened, and he hardened it more. Pharaoh was already a sinner when he got his heart hardened. Every sinner you know has got a hard heart, and their sin increases the hardness. Exodus 7, 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Exodus 9:12. but the Lord hardened of Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them. Exodus 10.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials. He hardened the officials' official's heart just as much as he hardened Pharaoh's hearts. Exodus 10.20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the Israelites go. Exodus 10.27, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Exodus 14.4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, pursue the Israelites. Exodus 14.17, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh. I left that out in the previous quote there. Exodus 14.4 says the same thing as in verse 17 of Exodus 14. The purpose of that hardened the heart is so that God would judge the gross sin. Pharaoh ended up in worse sin than he was before. But God said, okay, I'll let that go on. I'll let that bad sin go on. But when you get knocked out, Pharaoh, the whole world's going to be talking about it because of your sin. And that's as an application point. That's something to think about now. The sin in America has gotten so gross, it, it wears you down. But just think about it. God could very well be allowing that to go on so that when he judges it, it's going to be so that everybody knows you don't miss. You are a sinner in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards most, once most famously said. You know, that's a famous sermon. I have a friend of mine who went up to New England. I forgot where Jonathan Edwards Northfield. I forgot where he was somewhere in Connecticut. I think it was in Connecticut. And my friend went into the little town where Jonathan Edwards lived, and they had a historical thing there, and he went in to ask about Jonathan Edwards. And those Yankee liberals did not even know who Jonathan Edwards was. Morons! Illiterates! And these were historical people who ought to know about things. And it was their own hometown. But at any rate, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, and this shows God's glory and who he is. When's the last time you heard a wussy-pussy evangelical preacher Talk about God's wrath and His justice. When's the last time? You're not going to hear it. Well, you might go to a Presbyterian church or a Reformed Baptist church. Maybe you might hear it, but you don't hear it very much. Isaiah 6:10. Dull the minds of these people, deafen their ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back, and be healed. That's not talking about Pharaoh, but that's talking about how God does blind people's eyes when they sin. And again, we've got to remember, it's not that he's blinding sweet and innocent people, he's blinding people who, who who are intentionally sinning and rebelling against God, and he makes the judgment worse because their hearts get harder and harder. Here's the application of this. People often say they will repent, but later, well, give me some time, I need to sow my wild oats. They don't realize the more they sin, the harder their hearts get. And the harder their hearts get, the harder it is for people to repent. I just saw a great out-of-body, a a near-death experience by a horse farmer in Kentucky. He was wealthy. He lived his life for money and had a Christian wife who prayed for him that God would open his eyes. But the man was just sold out to mammon. And then he got sick, Guillain-Barre disease, five years. Then he passed out in a truck and he died. His spirit left and he looked over a a cliff. And he saw this horrible, nasty being come out with malice in his eyes, which I assume was one of Satan's (laughs) demons. And then he looks over to the right and he sees his perfect paradise. And he sees Jesus. And he says, okay, I believe in Jesus. And he came back to his body. They revived him. And he's a dedicated Christian now. Well, he was late. He was in his early 60s. And it took something big time to get him saved. He had to have a vision of hell and heaven before he got saved. And his wife was saying the ironic thing was he got this horrible, debilitating disease. He was in constant pain. But he's still so hard-hearted and cocky and arrogant. He called him. They, the, his friends called him Diamond Jim because he was so into money. And he and he still, even after getting struck down with that terrible disease, he still didn't depend on God. He still didn't bend his knee to God. I'm telling you, people are real stubborn and very hard in their hearts. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible to repent as you let time go on because you always have the, the opportunity to do so if you so desire. But it gets harder and harder as your heart gets harder and harder. Now, here is a discussion of what it means to have your heart hardened. God simply allows the sinner alone to do what comes naturally. In other words, it's more or less God just removing his grace and mercy and letting the natural outflow of the sinner's heart work itself out in his life. God takes away the normal restraints to the sinner's sin nature, for example, maybe the love of family, societal expectations, tradition, things that hold people back. And God says, okay, you want to keep sinning? I'll 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 just back off and watch you live out your sinful life. Kind of like Hank Williams Jr. said, Hank, why do you smoke and why do you roll coke? Why do you live out the songs that your daddy wrote? He's just carrying on a family tradition, talking about all the alcoholism that Hank Sr. was involved in. Well, you get people like that that don't have societal restraints. This is what they'll do. They'll just keep going until they fall off a mountain and get their face bashed in and almost die. And then they shape up, as Hank did, at least on a secular basis i don't know i don't think he's gotten saved yet i hope he does because i love his music but anyway let me give you a quote from john gill hardening of men's hearts may be understand in perfect agreement with the justice and holiness of god men first harden their own hearts by sinning as pharaoh did what god does is by leaving them to the hardness of their hearts denying them that grace which only can soften them and which is he is not obliged to give and therefore does them no injustice in withholding it from them. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this. The hardening of the heart comes, quote, by judicially judicially abandoning them to the hardening influence of sin itself. Here's some more scriptures about, that illustrates this point about God just leads you over to your sin and let sin take its course, Psalm 81:12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own plans. See, God just said, okay, stubborn heart, do your business. Romans 1:24 therefore God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity. He just gave them over and let their body, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. He's talking about homosexuality there. He just said, "Okay, you want to be homosexual, fine. Go ahead. Follow your lust. I'm not I'm not punishing you. You you you'll get the tuberculosis and the AIDS. I'm not doing that. You're doing it." Romans 1:26. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. For even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. That's talking about homosexuality. Also, God delivered them over. He doesn't put the punishment on them. The depression. You know, I heard somebody say, you know, the gay lifestyle is anything but gay. And if you read some of their literature, the, the problems that homosexuals have is really, really bad. Salvation Army helps homosexual homeless people. And talks, and I remember reading something about how they say that's one of the, a, there's a high level of homosexual percentage-wise, there's a lot of homosexuals in the homeless population, again, because there's a lot of stuff that happens to homosexuals that doesn't happen to people that are heterosexuals. Just to name tuberculosis, just to name the AIDS, for example. But God didn't do that. They did it. Romans 1.28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. I think that's talking about other people besides homosexuals. That's in Romans 1, those three verses. It's a lot of delivering over to sin, delivering over to sin. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage, encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Notice that sin creates a hardening. The longer you sin, the stupider you get, and the harder it is for you to repent. Hardening cannot mean that God is the author of evil. The hardening is a punishment for the evil already done in the sinner. Here's an analogy. A dam keeps a river from flowing downhill. Remove the dam, the water flows freely. The analogy is this. God is the dam. The sin in your life is flowing like a river, and God dams it up. And then if you insist on keep push, push, letting the water of sin flow down the riverbed, God's going to say, okay, dam's gone. Boom, the dam's removed, and the sinner gets washed away. So God wants to do all this. Let me Let me go back to the verse here. Romans nine eighteen. God hardens those he wants to harden. He does want to do it. He wills to do it. But this does not mean that God is arbitrary in his punishments. He doesn't just say, oh, I think I'll nail this person, A, and then here's Susie Q over there. I'm going to nail her. No, he's not arbitrary in his punishments. He punishes based upon people's sin. And then obviously, the NIV Study Bible points out Paul ultimately bases his reason on Israel's rejection because of her unbelief. And again, it's so easy to forget the context. Paul is trying to explain why God's promises are still in effect, they have not been thrown down because of Israel's unbelief. He's saying the reason that Israel is not believing is because God had to punish them because they made some really bad, sinful choices. Here's a good quote from Steve Akinson to finish verse 18 up. In some theology, he's referring to Arminian theology. God is impotent before the almighty sinner's choice. Poor God can only wait on the sidelines, wringing his hands, hoping people will believe in Jesus so he can have mercy on them. Not so. God shows mercy totally at his prerogative and even hardens others. Amen, Brother Steve. Romans 9:19. 9, you will say to me, Paul continues, you will say to me, he's rever- addressing this hypothetical objector who says that God is unjust, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? See there, he's he's objecting to what I would call an Arminian objector, Say, well, you just took away man's human responsibility. If God judges, hardens people's heart, then that means they can't help but sin. And I've just been trying to point out to you as so I've gone through this, no, that's not, no, they're sinning because they want to sin. Paul is anticipating a natural objection. Where is culpability if God hardens someone against the sinner's will? Now, of course, that is... A false way of stating the premise. The premise in such a question is wrong. People like that do not resist God against their will. They are resisting God in according to their will. They want to resist God. They resist God willingly, knowingly, and naturally. So the question of the objector makes here the question that the objector makes here is misstated, misleadingly misstated. Who can resist his will? Like oh, I'm just, I'm a sweet and innocent pure person, and God is making me sin. And making me get judged, even though I didn't want to sin. Nonsense! Now you notice again how this verse is so inimical to the, inimical to the Armenian position. Nobody is going to tell an Armenian, "Hey, you Armenian, why does God still find fault?" Because the Armenian, in, in his well-intentioned desire to deliver God from blame, says, "Hey, it's not God's fault. It's our choices' fault. It's our fault. We make the choice to save, and we make the choice to be damned." All right, well, if you hold that theology, nobody's ever going to complain to you and say God's unfair, are they? But they were complaining to Paul that God was unfair, which proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, my dear Armenians, that Paul was a Calvinist. He was an Augustinian. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Paul wasn't teaching tunnel of time stuff. He was teaching predestination and reprobation, and that's why he had to defend himself against these charges that god was unjust he was taking away sinners free will this is the same objection he had back in verse 14 five verses previous romans nine fourteen. paul says this what should we say that is there injustice with god absolutely not so it, it, the whole thing goes down to it makes god is is accused of being unfair from a certain standpoint if you assume that sinners are not sinners well then yeah god's unfair if but if you assume that everybody Everybody is a sinner, and everybody deserves to go to hell, and God choosing some is a matter of mercy, and then God is perfectly fair. Paul had an easier Arminian answer. He could have just said, oh, no, God's fair. He looks down the tunnel of time. He sees who what people are going to choose, and he bases it based on their choice, so he's fair. It would have been an easy answer. Paul didn't do it. He didn't do it in verse 14, and he didn't do it here in verse 19. He could have, because, why didn't he? Because he was not an Arminian. This is the second time he refused or fail to use an Arminian answer that could have been there. Romans 9:20. Paul continues, But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Again, he's talking to the hypothetical Arminian. But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why do you make me like this? Of course, the one who is formed, that would be us, the human creature. The one who formed it, who made the human creature, would be God. What are we to look up to God and say, Hey, why did you make me like this? Make me a sinner. Why are we talking back to God? Now, the NIV study bible points out that Paul is of course not silencing all question of God of questioning of God by man. We have our questions, we ask God, that's why we have the Bible, that's why we have prayer, that's why we have other Christians to help us out. Of course we question all the time. But what he is objecting to is those with an impenitent, God defying attitude. I'm not a sinner. How can you how can you not elect me? How can you reprobate me and send me to hell? I'm not a sinner. By their very question, they defame the character of God. They've got no right to tell God that because we all deserve to go to hell. None of us can talk back to God. I tell you, the dumbest thing anybody can do is to question God's justice and love. That, For example, even for Christians who are not going to hell, but they're going through suffering. And you look up and God say, why me, God? I don't deserve this. Uh-uh, that's a bad career move there. Don't ever do that. God knows what he's doing. He loves you. And he's just. Some people, I don't know who these people are, quoted by John Gill, says that Paul refuses to answer the question about, about, is there injustice with God? He just says, absolutely not. I'm not going to answer the question. Who are you to talk back to God? I'm not going to answer you. That question is not worthy of an answer. That's basically what Paul is saying. And then some people say, well, Paul couldn't answer the question. He couldn't answer the question. He couldn't defend God's justice. That's, of course, absolute nonsense. Now, it is absurd for the creature to criticize the Creator, as Paul says in verse 20. Here's some scriptures here. these These scriptures are from Job. I mentioned about questioning God and suffering. These scriptures mean a lot to me because there was a young girl who grew up. She she was my kid's age. She grew up in my neighborhood. She became an incredible missionary, got people saved all over the world. I remember one time she went into a hut in somewhere in India. A guy was totally blind. She went there, prayed for him. He could see her workmate, her missionary mate that was with her, took the picture of it on the cell phone. She showed it to me in my house and the only reason she did it is because i asked her for it because she was so humble. she's just like the kid in the neighborhood she was an incredible person and she died at the age of 26 and while she was dying she we found out she was overseas working in an orphanage in malaysia i think it was and we got the word here in the neighborhood and i'm sitting down on the porch and i'm pretty torn up about it and i'm praying oh god please don't let her die she had about about a half a day to live when i was praying And I just randomly, I hate to say, it it sounded like that, what is it, Bible roulette, where you just open up the Bible and point somewhere, but I don't know why, but I believe this was God. I don't believe this was Bible roulette. I opened up the Bible and came to Job 40, and I'm going to read some of these verses here in just a minute, but let's start with Job 38, 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words, referring to Job's false friends? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job 40 verse 2. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Ooh. Job 40 verses 8-14, would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory? Unleash your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Look on every proud person and humble him. This is Job talking now. Trample the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Imprison them in the grave. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. Actually, this is God talking to Job saying, you can do all that. Then you can can criticize me. Now, I read those verses while uh, this young lady was dying. And... It, they they really it struck me I'll never forget it because I think it was God saying, Look, I know what I'm doing. She ain't gonna live and she did. there has been a book written about her since. I was on the back side of China doing my Bible studies on Psalm. I found a great something about Psalm, a quotation from C. S. Lewis on the Psalms. I wanted to use it in my notes and I when I saw the on the blog that the man was in not only in China, he was in the western part of China where I was. So I contacted him he was a young man, he was he was in his early twenties, and I looked on his blog and doggone his wife wasn't with him because his wife was going to a mission conference in the Caribbean, I think it was to see about replacing a young missionary who had died on the field and that was the young lady who grew up in my neighborhood and it uh she had become so well known in missionary circles that people were devoting their lives to to being missionaries to she went into the most unbelievably, and I was in China, which is not exactly the most comfortable place in the world, but I mean, the places this girl went to were unbelievable. The stuff she ate would curl your hair, and the dangerous places she went in, the prisons she went into, and the the slums she went into, and I was at her funeral, and I saw a bunch of people crying like babies, a lot of whom went on the mission field after that funeral, one of the best funerals I ever saw in my life. God knew what he was doing. There's been a book written by about her. Her sister wrote a book. The book has also blessed other people. Now, it cost her family a whole ton of grief, a whole ton of healing that needed to be done. But I'm going to tell you something. God knew what he was doing. And it wasn't up to me or anybody else to say, God, please, you know, it's not fair if you take her. No, sir. We don't ever say that to God. Now, notice in verse 20 the question that this, what I call the Armenian objector, I guess that's a little bit pejorative, but... I don't know. He who controls the microphone controls the spin. This Armenian objector says, Why did you make me like this? Saying to God. Well, notice that that's not a correct question. God didn't make him like this. He made him like this, or rather his federal head. Adam make like, made him like this. God didn't make mankind evil. He made mankind pure and sinless. So quit complaining. You can complain. You can say, Well, my father, Adam, did it. But don't blame God. And, of course, instead of blaming God, that objecting sinner could also say, I want to get saved. I want you to take away my sins. As far as he's concerned, he has every ability to do that. He doesn't know who, whether he's in the elect or not. We go to verse 21. Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And of course, this is referring to what he's just said in verse 19. What? It, how can what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why'd you make me like this, the same... Metaphor, verse 21, how can the pot say to the potter, hey, why'd you make me like this? You got, there's a bump here. I don't like this. Well, that's stupid, of course. Nobody ever, no pot ever talked to the potter like that. Now, the potter is making a piece of pottery, one for honor and another for dishonor. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, Paul is quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to the one who argues with his maker. That's the same idea that Job was expressing. Woe to the one who argues with his maker, one clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Now we have an issue here in this verse. When does the potter say to the clay? When does God say to the human race, I'm going to make one, some of you vessels of honor and some vessels of dishonor? Pottery for honor and pottery for dishonor. When does this happen? Well, I think it refers to men after mankind was created. So then God chooses the one for honor that he wants, That's the elect, and the rest by implication are being chosen for dishonor when God passes over them. But John Gill says that this appears to refer to man before he was created. His argument is that God at that time was then making the decision which vessel would be for honor or dishonor. Of course, this is a logical before, not a temporal before, because God's not in time. So God needs to have a purpose why he's making the vessels. John Gill argues this way, if man... The clay was already fallen when God made the choice for honor or dishonor. If he was already fallen, how could one man be for dishonor? He's already for dishonor. And my answer to that is very easy. The one who God did not elect to save was for dishonor because the ones that were elected for salvation were for honor. So that could happen after the clay was already fallen. John Gill also further argues, how could God create man without an end? Here's the quote from Gill, for God Gill by the way is a strong Calvinist, for God to create man and then to fix the end of his creation is to do what no wise potter would do, first make his pots and then think of the end of making them and the use they are to be put to. Well, then of course the next question that position hold uh, ends up in is does that not then make God the author of sin? He says, "Okay, I'm going to make this pot for dishonor. I'm going to make him so he can go to hell." Ooh. That don't sound so good. NIV Study Bible says the analogy should not be pressed to the extreme. In my humble opinion, Gil is expressing it to the extreme. I think the main point of what Paul is doing here is that God can take his sinning creatures and do what he wants to with them. This sounds a lot like, what is it, superlapsarianism? God reprobated the reprobates before the creation of the world. That stuff's over my head. But at any rate, I think that what Paul is talking about here is, is what God does with the mass of sinful humanity. He saves some and he passes over some and doesn't save them. He saves some in his mercy and leaves the other to, others, to others to his justice. We go to verse 22, and what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, objects of wrath destined, ready, ready for destruction? Now we have an option here, an option as to which group of people is being endured by God with patience. Is it unregenerate people before they were saved? And then God saves them. He puts up with their sin a long time during their life and finally says, okay, I'm going to save you. Now, verse 23 would seem to indicate this, the next verse. Paul says, and what if he did this, in other words, held back on his judgment, to make known the rich of his glory on objects of mercy? So the this in verse 23 is referring to verse 22, that God endured with much patience. He held back on his wrath. And he, he in other words, When we were born, as sinful as we were, he could have wiped us out at the very beginning, but he decided to hold off and let us live our life of sin and put up with our crap. And then he says, okay, I I will wait, and then I will save you. Or it could be, what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, objects of wrath, prepared, destined, I think one translation has it, destined for destruction, in other words, the unbeliever's. He endured with much patience. He didn't wipe them out as soon as they were born. He lets them go his whole life, and then he pours out his wrath to make his power known. Just like God put up with Pharaoh for a long time before he finally punished him. Now, notice, whichever way you go on that, whether it's talking about wrath being displayed to non-Christians in their unregenerate state, or it's talking about wrath being displayed to unregenerate humans in their eternal state, whatever it is, the point is that God needs to display his wrath. He needs to make his power known. We have got to know the effects of our sin. And because we have such a pitiful standard of justice and of God's holiness, he's got to show us, which means he's got to show us punishment. Why does God need to do this? Well, let me give you some theological musing on my part. If it were not for hell, God would not ever be able to show either his justice or mercy. If no one were ever punished, no one would ever know how serious it is to break God's laws. Nor would people know, therefore, how great God's mercy is. Because... People would not know what they were pardoned from. If no one were ever pardoned, no one would ever know God's mercy. So in order to have mercy, you've got to have judgment. Romans 9.23. Now, what if he did this, endured with much patience the wrath on, that, that was coming on the vessels ready for judgment? What if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy? And there's my point. If you, if you don't have judgment... You can't, God can't, if God doesn't have judgment, he cannot make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy. You don't understand mercy unless there's judgment. You can't understand what you're being saved from unless there's damnation to be saved from. And what if he did this, refrain from judgment, to make known the riches of his glory on objects, objects of mercy, the elect, that he prepared beforehand for glory? Now that beforehand sounds like the die was cast for glorification or destruction before one is born. As Steve Ackerson says, just like it was with Jacob and Esau, who gets the birthright that was decided before we were born. Now, of course, that gets into great theological difficulty. I just finished saying that John Gill believed that the choosing of the objects of wrath for destruction was before we were born. And then you get into problems with, does that make God the author of evil? Lots of theology. And I admit, I'm not capable of engaging in such deep theological speculation. But Paul does say here, verse 23, that God prepared us for glory before the foundation of the world. Beforehand, that's what that means. Probably before the foundation of the world, before we're born. We go to verse 24, Romans 9, we'll finish up this section. Well, it's in the middle of a sentence. So let me go back and pick up verse 23. But what if he did this, refrain from judgment, to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory, verse 24, on us, for glory on us, he prepared beforehand to put glory on us. The ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. The NIV, for on us, is even us, for the glory that he put, even, he prepared, he wanted to show the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that prepared for glory, even us. The one, that's the NIV, the ones he also called, and of course called means the internal call, the effectual call, call for salvation, irresistible grace, it comes into our lives and we respond to it by believing The ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, the object of being called and glorified is, that was his object all along. Let's review Romans 8.30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So remember, the whole point of this, of of him calling us, is that he might eventually glorify us. Paul mentions that calling word a lot. Romans 1.7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. And remember, there's an external, general call to the world. Some are invited, but not all come in. That's the external call. Paul here is talking about the internal call. The inward call is you're called by the Holy Spirit in your heart, and you respond to it by being, regener- by being saved and regenerated. Called you as saints. Notice he didn't call you as a sinner. He called you as a saint because you're a saint, not a sinner. Romans 8:28. 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. We're called according to his purpose. Paul once again mentions the Gentiles here. We're called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. I think he constantly has to remind the Jews of that because they're just not used to the idea. These particularistic Jews were not used to the idea that the gospel was universal and that everybody in the world was going to believe in it, not just Jews. So he mentions the Gentiles come too. And another reason why he mentions it here is because of the overall theme of Romans 9 is that, hey, God's promises didn't fail. God's promises to Abraham didn't fail because Jews are not believing, because we got Gentiles. God's called Gentiles, and Gentiles help fulfill that promise. It's not just physical Jews that do. Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, there's some other believers too. Gentiles. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, the Gentiles. Now, one last point before we leave verse 24 and finish up. God's plan for the Gentiles to come in. That was part of God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't like this. It wasn't that God's plan A for Israel failed, and God's plan B for Gentiles now kicks in. No, his plan from the very beginning was for Gentiles to be in the gospel. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have finished with verses 14 through 24. God, Paul defends himself against people who say that God is unjust because he sovereignly elects. We will continue with this theme starting in verse 25 and finish up Romans 9 in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.